the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, well, good Wednesday afternoon. I am Georgine Rice, in for Frank Sontag. I'm the afternoon talk host at KKLA sister station, KPDQ in Portland, Oregon. And my understanding is Frank begins every hour with an impact statement, about 20 minutes, 20 plus minutes of uninterrupted dialogue and discussion. So we want to get started with a look at some of the day's top news stories, beginning with an update on Supreme Court um, Associate Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was uh, earlier today discharged from hospital. She's doing well after treatment for possible infection, according to the Supreme Court. So, again, doing well. Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been discharged, whether she'll be... um, Back on the bench when it's time to return uh, in good, fine health. We don't know, but thankfully she is uh, progressing well at this point. Well, President Trump veered off script on Tuesday after announcing new legislation against China to attack his uh, presidential election rival, Joe Biden, over his recent uh, policy proposals, accusing the former vice president of aligning his campaign with Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other progressive leaders on the left. Trump said there's never been a time when two candidates were so different. I'm not sure that's true, but they certainly are different. Well, the Biden campaign later fired back at Trump's comments, saying today's statement that was ostensibly supposed to be about China. But there was one topic that President Trump couldn't seem to get off his mind. Joe Biden, whose name the president invoked nearly 30 times. The whole sad affair says more about Donald Trump. The American taxpayers should be reimbursed for the abuse of funds this spectacle represented, the campaign said, adding that a real leader, referring to Joe Biden, spoke earlier in Wilmington. Now, Trump's comments came hours after Biden released a $2 trillion plan to boost investment in clean energy and stop all climate-damaging emissions from U.S. power plants by 2035. Biden told reporters, when Donald Trump thinks about climate change, the only word he can muster is hoax. When I think about climate change, what I think of is jobs, end quote. The president signed an executive order to hold China accountable for actions against Hong Kong. And as mentioned, Joe Biden unveiled a $2 trillion plan to boost clean energy, rebuild infrastructure, and pushes the populist Made in America plan to pump up the economy. RG3, Emmett Smith, and Calvin Johnson are teaming up with Team Biden. Well, primaries on Tuesday, Jeff Session loses. Trump's White House doctor wins. That's essentially the headline. Senator Collins' challenger confirmed. Well, Tommy Tuberville, a first-time politician and former Auburn University football coach, defeated former U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, thanks in part to an endorsement from the president. And former White House physician Ronnie Jackson is a step closer to winning a seat in Congress. The AP projected uh, last night that Jackson was the winner of the House GOP primary runoff in Texas, 13th Congressional District, in the race to succeed Republican Representative Mac Thornberry, who's retiring after 25 years in office. For months, Maine's Democrat... Uh, Uh, Democratic State House Speaker Sarah Gideon had been running a general election type Senate challenge against longtime GOP Senator Susan Collins. Now it's official. She will face off against Collins come November. 
Well, in my hometown of Portland, Oregon, Mayor Ted Wheeler lashed out at the Department of Homeland Security on Twitter Tuesday, urging federal agents to stay inside or leave as the city faces its sixth straight week of protests and unrest. I didn't make mention to the loss of property, the injuries and everything that's gone along with it, the disruption in the city. But instead of addressing the, the cause of all of that, he says he wants the federal agents to go home. Now, he's not willing to allow the Portland Police Department to do its job. So I guess we just have to fend for ourselves here. He went on to say, I told the acting secretary that my biggest immediate concern is the violence federal officers brought to our streets in recent days and the life-threatening tactics his agents use. We do not need or want their help. Now, clearly, Mayor Wheeler Wheeler is speaking for himself. We do need help here in Portland, but the mayor is not willing to extend it from his own resources or accept it from the feds. DHS deployed officers from multiple federal law enforcement agencies this month to protect government installations uh, that include the courthouse and other buildings. Demonstrations have taken uh, place around the country after the the 25th um, of May death of George Floyd in Minneapolis in police custody. Meanwhile, city businesses have reported $23 million in losses due to looters and rioters amid the coronavirus pandemic. That's due to uh, looters and rioters already causing massive economic damage. Well, the coronavirus made 36% of Americans delay financial milestones in the latest business news, and China is vowed to retaliate after President Trump ended preferential status for Hong Kong. A coronavirus vaccine trial, first test in the U.S., has uh, yielded antibodies in patients, according to researchers, and Moderna stock is soaring following positive results in that coronavirus vaccine uh, candidate. Barry Weiss' uh, resignation letter to the New York Times has gone viral. Uh, Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, she wrote, but Twitter has become the ultimate editor as the ethics and mores of that platform have become those of the paper. The paper itself has increasingly become a kind of performance space. Stories are chosen and told in a way that satisfy the narrowest of audiences, she wrote, rather than to allow a curious public to read about the world and then draw their own conclusions. I was always taught that journalists were charged with writing the first rough draft of history. Now history itself is one more ephemeral thing molded to fit the needs of a predetermined narrative. She's too moderate for a paper drifting further to the left, the Federalist points out. And Ben Shapiro writes of this uh, ongoing controversy. This letter of resignation is devastating. From Seth Mandel, he says that this is the latest thing to appear under the uh, Barry Weiss byline at the New York Times shows just what a profound mistake that institution has made. It was lucky to have Barry but never deserved her. And from Christina, Christina Summers, rather, seven years ago, she writes, before the New York Times became narrative-driven, it published my piece on the plight of boys. I worked with a wonderful editor, now gone, who told me he wasn't sure he agreed with me, but who helped me draft the piece. Sadly, those days are gone. And from Tom Cotton, the New York Times transition from a newspaper to a safe space for woke mob continues. David Harsinyi asked, has a single person at the New York Times spoken up for Weiss? The answer appears to be no at this point. And CNN couldn't cover the story without calling her controversial. 
For similar reasons, Andrew Sullivan is leaving the New York Magazine. He said he would make clear what his reasons were at some point in the not-too-distant future. Well, Nikki Haley writes, cancel culture doesn't speak for the vast majority of Americans. There's a screaming 1% that's trying to shout down the other 99%. The last thing that cancel culture warriors want is to have an honest and open discussion about anything. They're too blinded by anger to sit down with anyone who feels differently than they do. They prefer the quick rush that comes from driving people apart to the hard work of bringing people together. Wall Street Journal points out that there is a clear difference between holding people accountable for what they say and canceling them. Accountability allows for redemption. Canceling constitutes a hatred-fueled public shaming that aims to ruin a person's life. It ignores moral development, especially when the offending comment was made years ago. To give equal weight to statements people make when they are young and those uh, they make as adults is absurd. Differences in opinions over time are often a sign of growth, something laudable. And Oregon is making face masks mandatory outdoors all across the country. Violators can potentially face a maximum penalty of 30 days in jail and a $1,250 fine under the governor's executive order here. The Wall Street Journal looks at the need to avoid shutdowns in its uh, latest piece. Meanwhile, Jake Tapper is highly critical of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who's proud of his COVID-19 record for New York, where more people have died than any other state. Well, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art curator Gary Garrels rejected what he called reverse discrimination, so they declared him a racist. The curator has been ousted for his willingness to accept art from white male artists. Wow. As a terror group openly calls for more um, help in attacking police, Portland's mayor, Ted Wheeler, a Democrat, blamed President Trump. The riots continue here, and they are referred to as riots. That's what's necessary in order for any response to be triggered. Uh, With no end in sight, this could go on for quite some time. And the New York Times said Tuesday it's going to adapt into um, a number of television series and films, the New York Times 1619 Project, coming to Hollywood for some treatment. Perhaps they'll um, address the errors in the project and set them to rights, but my guess is that's probably not the case. It's going to be done in partnership with Oprah Winfrey and Hollywood studio Lionsgate. That, despite criticism of the project conceived of by New York Times journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, particularly over the claim that protecting the institution of slavery was a major reason the colonies rebelled against British rule. And Ford employees are demanding that their CEO stop making police cars. About 100 employees signed the absurd letter. Now, what's next? We're not going to make police cars. We're not going to make police cars with people with certain or cars in general for people with certain political views or um, people of certain race. If you're not woke, uh, really, you make cars. That, that's all you're supposed to do. Anyway, there are two key takeaways from the outcome of Tuesday's primaries in Alabama, Maine, and Texas. Doug Schoen, writing for Fox News, uh, says, first, the big winner of the night was President Trump. Several Trump-backed candidates defeated their opponents and unquestionably benefited significantly from the president's support. The most notable of these was former Auburn University football coach Tuberville, who defeated former Senator and Attorney General Jeff Sessions for the GOP nomination for a U.S. Senate seat in Alabama. Tuberville will face Democrat Senator Doug Jones, um, considered a highly vulnerable incumbent. Second, Democratic primary results show the party is deeply divided, complicating the Democrats' path to winning majority control of the Senate and defeating Trump in the November election. Well, we'll see if that pans out. 
Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel is warning today is tax day, which serves as a fitting reminder that with less than four months until November the election, never has there been a clearer contrast between two candidates' tax plans as exists between President Trump and Joe Biden. Over 80 percent of middle-income Americans saw a tax cut thanks to President Trump, she says, with lower middle-class households actually experiencing the largest tax code. Nearly 30 million American households are now better off taking a simpler standard deduction, which the president and Republicans doubled, a change that saves taxpayers $5 billion each year. She went on to tout the president's record of economic results, uh, saying they stood in stark contrast to what would happen if Joe Biden ever managed to stumble out of the basement and onto the Oval Office. We need no guess, uh, need not guess what tax date would look like under a President Biden. All of the positive effects of tax relief, she says, would evaporate in an instant. He has uh, said so himself. Well, that, again, is from the RNC chairman. Well, uh, once again, just in time for tax day, Joe Biden unveiled his $2 trillion AOC-fueled Green New Deal energy agenda. And they have called me a Nazi and a racist. Barry Weiss quits the New York Times after bullying by her colleagues over her views. Uh, no biggie. The Conference of Mayors backs reparations that could cost $6.2 quadrillion or $151 million per descendant. Now, I'm not sure how you actually... Pencil this out for people who were not and whose uh, family was not in the country prior to or during the time of slavery. Those who have been born since who's actually responsible. How do you how do you uh, pencil that out? I wonder. And Trump overhauls key environmental laws to uh, speed up the pipelines and other projects. Andrew Cuomo is taking heat over internal nursing home report, which backs up his own theory on nursing home deaths. And CNN's tapper unloads on Cuomo, calls for an end to the insane victory lap he appears to be taking. Well, China has threatened a response after the U.S. sanctions uh, were announced. And despite escalating Taliban government violence, the U.S. closes five military bases in southern and eastern Afghanistan as part of a peace deal struck with the Taliban. In the latest in COVID-19 news, Germany, they have a study, almost no coronavirus spread at schools that reopened, they report. And we've never seen anything uh, go perfectly. It's too much hope uh, being put into the coronavirus vac- vaccine, many are asking. Well, on the other hand, a tuberculosis vaccine may protect against infection. UPI is reporting And again, Moderna phase one results show coronavirus vaccine is safe. It induces immune response when taken uh, in two doses. In fact, we're going to be talking later this hour with Dr. Kevin Pham. He'll tell us more about this promising vaccine, or perhaps is it overstated and we should just balance our expectations. Well, travel from New York City seeded the nationwide crisis, according to new research. The Washington Examiner reports more fully and more collusion. Wuhan lab that uh, researches COVID-19 won't be visited by the World Health Organization investigators who are looking into the origin of the virus. Now, they might have just stopped by for appearance sake, but they're not even going to do that. Seattle just passed a new tax on jobs in the middle of an economic crisis, but exempted government workers. Uh, Vladimir Putin's celebratory vodka has been put on hold. The court has halted Dakota Access Pipeline shutdown as legal, the legal fight moves forward. And coronavirus uh, has costed uh, Delta Airlines nearly $6 billion in the second quarter. Apple has won major tax battle against the EU. Second highest court invalidates a $14.8 billion tax bill. You could almost hear the sigh of relief. 
An already outrageous prosecution in Atlanta turned scandalous. An embattled district attorney, Paul Howard, is suspected of issuing fraudulent grand jury subpoenas. And a media blackout, not with blackout, notwithstanding, black leaders rallied to save a Washington, D.C. Emancipation Memorial. The back and forth continues. New York City's black activists are calling on Mayor de Blasio and the city council to take your handcuffs off our police. You can read more about that in the Washington Examiner. And a judge has denied bail for allegations that Giselaine Maxwell uh, set for a trial in the sexual abuse case for July 2021. A federal judge has rejected Harvey Weinstein's $19 million settlement with alleged victims. And in Tennessee, the court has halted arguably the most conservative pro-life piece of legislation in the country 45 minutes after it was signed into law. A federal judge permanently voided Georgia's heartbeat abortion restriction. The governor is going to appeal that. And the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art curator has resigned, as mentioned before. He wouldn't uh, uh, resist art from white males. If it's well done, he was going to accept it. It wasn't racist art. It was just produced by Caucasian males. And apparently that's no longer acceptable. And you'd know that if you were woke enough. Hey, taking a look back in history, it was on this day in 1799 that French soldiers in Egypt discover the Rosetta Stone, which proves instrumental in deciphering ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. And in 1910, the term Alzheimer's disease is used to describe a progressive form of pre-senile dementia in the book Clinical Psychiatry by German psychiatrist Emil Kraperlin, uh, who credited the work of his colleague um, Alois, uh, I believe that's correct, Alzheimer in identifying the condition. Finally, 2002, John Walker Lind, an American who fought alongside the Taliban in Afghanistan, pleads guilty in federal court in Alexandria, Virginia, to two felonies, sparing him life in prison. Well, as I mentioned, the first coronavirus vaccine to be tested in the United States boosted the immune systems of the study's participants, and it's being hailed as a major step in the right direction toward eradicating COVID-19. Now, it's an interesting use of the word. Is that what they actually mean, eradicating COVID-19? Well, according to Dr. Anthony Fauci, he says no matter how you slice this, this is good news. Well, the vaccine, which was developed by researchers at the National Institutes of Health and Moderna, Inc., uh, they're going to be testing about 30,000 people in a study that begins on the 27th of this month to prove if it's strong enough to be effective against the virus. So that's uh, promising news on the scientific front. The administration announced a new rule only last week, but rescinded it. Just yesterday, the Trump administration on Tuesday said it was withdrawing proposed rules that would uh, would have forced foreign students to return home if the college courses they were enrolled in were to be held entirely online when colleges reopen in the fall. Immigration and Customs Enforcement announced last week that those on F-1 and M-1 student visas would need to leave the U.S. or transfer to another college in their school, offering classes entirely online when they reopen in the fall. If they did not, they would face deportation proceedings. Additionally, the agency announced that the State Department would not issue visas to students enrolled in full-time online uh, programs and that the U.S. Customs and Border Protection would not allow them into the country. But the administration said it was rescinding that rule as a court hearing was uh, getting underway on a lawsuit challenging the rule by Harvard University and Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Income Redistribution Day has arrived, 
In a normal year, of course, tax day occurs on the 15th of April, but 2020 is anything but normal. We all have come to learn. Due to the coronavirus pandemic shut down, the Treasury Department, ever so gracious, moved the filing date to July 15th. Of course, the IRS is also sitting on $1.5 billion in tax refunds waiting to be claimed. Well, the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, they released figures this week that should alarm every American, though most either won't notice or will shrug it off. Gone are the days of $1 trillion annual deficits. We're now staring down monthly deficits of nearly that much. June's deficit was $864 billion, bigger than the annual deficit in 2018. For further comparison, in June of 2019, the monthly deficit was just, in quotes, just $8 billion. Well, the annual deficit over the last 12 months is $3 trillion, and the CBO expects the, fis- the fiscal year ending September 30th. Well, that's going to spot a deficit of $3.7 trillion, smashing the previous record of $1.4 trillion and nearly equaling the entire federal budget as recently as 2017. Wow, that kind of sticks in your sticks in your throat. Those are really big numbers. You'll have to explain that to your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren when they are strapped with the debt that we have accumulated. Well, a new poll in the crucial general election battleground state of Pennsylvania shows Democratic challenger Joe Biden holding a double-digit lead over President Trump among registered voters. But a survey released on Wednesday by Monmouth University indicates that voters are evenly divided on which candidate they think will win the Keystone State. As a majority of those questioned believe that their communities hold a number of secret Trump voters. I mean, who wants to admit publicly they're voting for Trump when you are demonized, as is the case these days? Well, the former vice president and presumptive Democratic nominee topped the GOP incumbent in the White House among registered voters, 53 to 40 percent, according to the poll, which was conducted uh, the 9th through the 13th of this month. He's held a smaller lead over Trump among the smaller pool of likely voters. He topped the president 52 to 42 percent under a likely voter turnout model higher than the turnout in 2016's presidential election and held a 51-44 percent advantage under a lower likely turnout model. Well, President Donald Trump grew up in a dysfunctional family that believed money stood for uh, stood in for acts of love and one whose patriarch used his own kin as pawns, creating a quiet, dangerous situation for America decades later, the commander-in-chief's niece warned in an exclusive interview with ABC News. Yes, I'm referring to um, the niece of President Donald Trump, whose book will be released in just a few days. He is utterly incapable, she writes, Mary Trump, I should say Dr. Mary Trump, of leading this country and is dangerous to allow him to do so. She was speaking to in, uh, rather ABC anchor, uh, news anchor uh, George Stephanopoulos. She says it's impossible to know who Donald might have been had he been born into a different family, but his father, Fred Trump, was a sociopath who pushed his children to succeed at all costs, to view people as expendable, and to do anything to get attention, financial rewards, and win. Mary Trump's own father, Fred Trump Jr., the president's elder brother, didn't uh, conform to those family standards and was punished for being kind, for being generous, and for having interests outside of what my grandfather thought was acceptable. Well, so goes the book that will be released shortly on uh, the president from the familial perspective. Now, we um, 
Uh, we don't have a copy of the book yet, and we'll, uh, it will be interesting to see uh, how popular it may in fact be, but she is taking full advantage of this opportunity to try to influence the upcoming election. Again, Dr. Mary Trump on uh, President Trump, her uncle. Uh, again, I don't think they're probably going to spend Christmas or Thanksgiving together, but one can always hope reconciliation may be possible. Hey, you're listening to the Frank Sontag Show. I'm Georgine Rice filling in. This is my final day in the chair wearing these very large shoes. Later in the program, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Kevin Pham. He'll talk about why California's numbers are coming are uh, increasing and how to interpret that. We'll also talk about this new proposed vaccine and why in an earlier article he wrote that school is the safest place for kids to be. We'll also talk with Ann Polk. She is the executive director of Restored Hope Network. We'll get into all of that as the program progresses. You're listening to the Frank Sontag Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. I'm Georgine Rice in for Frank Sontag. I'm the afternoon host at KKLA sister station, KPDQ in Portland. Hey, you can give us a call at 888-528-2557. That's 888-528-2557. We're going to uh, continue to work our way through the news. Let us know what's on your mind. As well. Well, you'll be disappointed to learn, maybe not surprised, that Kanye West has apparently ended his presidential bid after 10 days. That's according to a new report in New York Magazine's The Intelligentsier. He's out. Steve Kramer told the publication that yesterday, I tell you um, what I know once I get all the stuff canceled, he said. Apparently, Kramer um, is the get out the vote specialist hired by Kanye West to help get the name on the election ballots of Florida and South Carolina, at least 180 people were actually hired for his presidential bid, his campaign, according to Kramer. Uh, West entered the, um, the presidential race on the 4th of July. Seems fitting, has yet to confirm or deny the report. In fact, he hasn't been heard on the subject for you know, a day or so. He's only been in for 10. According to my calculations, Conway West's presidential aspirations lasted one full Scaramucci. That's a quote from former White House communications director Anthony Scaramucci, tweeted on Wednesday. He's also known as the Mooch. He was um, dismissed from his White House role after 10 days in 2017, hence the reference. Well, Kanye West is 43. He denied rumors his presidential bid was public uh, publicity stunt for his upcoming new album or his uh, new clothing deal with Gap. The hip-hop star and husband of Kim Kardashian told Forbes last week that he was no longer supporting President Donald Trump. I am taking the red hat off with this interview and was concerned that the U.S. response to the coronavirus pandemic, claiming he uh, tested positive for COVID-19 in February. That's the most uh, that we've heard about that. Nonetheless, Kanye West has apparently dropped out of the 2020 presidential race. Now, you have no idea what will happen next. He may announce that he's in a different uh, race altogether. Maybe he's uh, Joe Biden's uh, vice presidential running mate. We don't know. Kanye West is oftentimes something of an, uh, a mystery. Well, an article published in the Los Angeles Times yesterday said the Star Spangled Banner should be replaced by Bill Withers' Lean on Me. Having a hard time picturing marching bands and, uh, you know, who's going to sing that before the opening of the Super Bowl. L.A. Times contributor Jody Rosen cited viral posts on social media that said the anthem is racist. Then he argued it is aesthetically a bad song in the article. Uh, she concluded saying the message of Lean on Me can be a foundation for a decent society. doesn't really go anywhere, but okay. Uh, in the point of a national anthem, 
if the point, she says, is to provide a mnemonic, a reminder in music and words of the ideas and values that this place is supposed to stand for, you could do worse than lean on me. Of course, you couldn't do much worse than lean on me, but uh, nonetheless, she is suggesting that may be the cut uh, for the next um, national anthem. My guess is it's probably... Uh, not going to go very far. By the way, she was referring to a 4th of July video produced by The Root that argued that the Star Spangled Banner is one of the most racist, pro-slavery, anti-black songs in the American lexicon. One of the central arguments in the video is that Francis Scott Key, who composed the anthem, was a slave owner. It's pretty fair to say dude was a racist, the video narrator said. Is it just me, or are you feeling just a hair exhausted How do you keep up with it all? Uh, Who am I supposed to hate? Who am I supposed to embrace? What am I supposed to ignore? What am I supposed to think? Where am I supposed to go? Am I black enough? It's exhausting. I'm going to take a long vacation, I think, after after the show today. Meanwhile, prominent African-American leaders and others are rallying around a statue in Washington, D.C. No, not to tear it down. The statue is depicting President Abraham Lincoln uh, freeing a slave. And by the way, it was paid for by freed slaves. This was their anthem. This was their Ebenezer, if you will, reminding them of the ordeal that they had just emerged from. But these black leaders say, we do not believe that America is so systematically racist that we should divide ourselves now and start having discussions with domestic terrorists about which statues stand and which statues fall. That's a quote from Star Parker, president of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, at a rally in the district's Lincoln Park, where the statue is uh, is erected. This country was founded on the rule of law, and it is this statue, uh, if this statue should come down, then it is up to the local governments and local city councils and local mayors to make that determination, not a unnamed mob. Parker was joined by other activists, among them, Civil rights champion Robert Woodson, Diana Schaub, a political scientist professor at the Loyola University, Maryland, Ryan Bomberger, founder of the um, Radiance Foundation, William Allen, chief operating officer of Parker's nonprofit organization. Protesters surrounded the Emancipation Memorial, that's what it's called, in Washington's Lincoln Park, the largest park in the Capitol, vowing that we're tearing this language I cannot use down. Well, apparently it won't be quite so easy. There are those who are saying, no, we will not permit it. Uh, meanwhile, a Republican from Idaho is demanding the Smithsonian remove a bust honoring Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. Sanger's been criticized for years over her support of eugenics as well as her racially charged comments. She's only advocated abortion when either the mother or father suffers from such diseases as tuberculosis, gonorrhea, syphilis, cancer, epilepsy, insanity, drunkenness, and mental disorders, or if they happen to be black or brown. We'll see how far that goes and if there's going to be a big mob showing up to tear that bust down. I doubt it. Hey, you're listening to the Frank Sontag Show. I'm Georgine Rice. We need to take a quick break, and we'll be back with uh, my guest, Dr. Kevin Pham. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon, and welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice, in for Frank Sontag. I'm the afternoon talk host at KKLA's sister station, KPDQ, in Portland. You can give us a call at 888-528-2557. And let's talk. That's 888-528-2557. 
Well, as you know, numbers have been an important element in this watch over COVID-19 and its impact all across the uh, the country. Kevin Pham is a doctor, a medical doctor, and a contributor to the Daily Signal. Dr. Pham is also a former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation. Recently, he wrote a column asking the question and answering the question, why is the COVID-19 caseload rising in California? He also wrote about... Um, uh, the question of what's the safest things for kids, but I invited him to talk about the numbers, how to interpret them, and why they seem to be rising in California, despite the uh, cautious uh, effort on the part of the uh, governor in reopening. Dr. Pham, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Well, there's a lot of concern about numbers, what they mean, if they're accurate, if they reflect actual cases, how concerned we ought to be. So let's begin, uh, as you do in your Daily Signal column, when you point out that there are several states that are nexus uh, of the current rush of cases. But California has been pretty cautious in reopening, and they've maintained many of the mitigation measures during this time, yet the numbers have gone up. Uh, it's And a lot of people are speculating as to why that is the case. What is your perspective on why numbers are going up in California and your thoughts on the governor's most recent um, lockdown? Sure. Uh, the numbers are going up in a fairly similar manner across several different states that have had different um, approaches to reopening their, their economies. And what that tells me is that a lot of what happened, a lot of what's contributing to the surge in cases has very little to do with policy and has more to do with public behavior. And I think that one of the things that really contributed to, to, contributed to this was the um, uh, sense of complacency uh, as far as our reaction to the pandemic. We had done, actually, we had actually been doing very well as far as mitigating the spread of this disease um, ever since April. Uh, if you look at the number of daily cases, they had they have been going steadily down uh, fairly quickly, actually, since April. And uh, because of because of our successes, people started becoming a little too complacent and started going out, packing into dense areas, including for Memorial Day gatherings or for uh, protests or for riots or just um, seeing this and then going out into bars and stuff like that. When you pack yourself into these areas, even if you're wearing a mask, like the mask is not going to protect you. It's not going to save you from transmitting um, viruses to other people when you're that close to other people. So people have sort of let the guard down, and that's, and a lot of what's happened in the month of June, all of this together has contributed to the surge in cases. Now, Governor Newsom recently blamed the uh, increase on young invincibles, and these he was referring to are young adults who aren't complying well with disease precautions. Is that your observation as well, that uh, among some in the population are those who believe, well, you know, I'm less vulnerable, and certainly if I contract uh, the virus, it's not going to have as much or as serious a, a, a impact, uh, or are you seeing just the general population being less cautious? It, it does definitely seem to be among the younger populations, which is a good thing because we can expect our mortality to be a little bit lower than it was at the beginning of this pandemic response. But that having been said, just because your risk is low does not mean your risk is zero. That's, that's one thing. Um, I think that People aren't realizing the younger people, it's not that they're weighing the risk and deciding to go out. I think they're disregarding the risk completely because if you know that your risk of dying is 1%, then you'd probably take some kind of precautions. But uh, some of the pictures that we've seen, and anecdotally I've seen it, is people just go out and pack into these areas without masks, and um, you know they're at, they're at a bar shouting orders. Those people are not thinking about risks at all. And so 
it's uh, yeah, it's the complacency. They think that they're not going to get it. I think um, Governor Newsom is absolutely correct as far as the age group of uh, these people who are contributing to the surge in cases. The numbers bear this out, in fact. What, what at this point is the goal? Originally, it was flattening the curve, making sure that we didn't overwhelm the health care system. And so people were willing to remain isolated uh, to guarantee that those who do contract the virus have sufficient access to health care. That seems to be less uh, the goal at this point. Um, as we all agree, we can't remain isolated indefinitely. What at this point is the goal? The goal, the goal, so the goal of the, the first 15 days to slow the spread and the following 30 days to slow the spread, that, that was to flatten the curve. And I think we did that very well. Following that, different states began to reopen slowly. And the idea of opening up in a phased and methodical um, manner, that was so that we can slowly get back to our normal daily lives. And people who get infected, they will be properly treated. And then after that, then they'll recover and then hopefully have some kind of immunity as we begin to open up more and more and more. The problem that we ran into is that, like I said before, the month of June was not, was not slow and nor, nor was it normal. And so you have um, a lot of people who are spreading the disease to one another. And once again, they spread it to someone else. And so you have the, the exponential curve that we see that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic happening again in, in June uh, going into um, July. Now, just in the last day or so, we've been hearing about the first coronavirus vaccine to be talked about here in the U.S. that boosted the immune system of the study's participants. It's being hailed as a major step in the right direction towards eradicating COVID-19. Now, oftentimes reports don't use the right language to refer to uh, medical breakthroughs. Uh, your thoughts on this uh, this vaccine, as they're referring to it, uh, is there a reason for hope? And what are your uh, what's your understanding of what we're just now hearing about? There's certainly a reason for hope, uh, not for the least of which reason, is that this is a very fast-moving uh, development process, and it, it's really evidence that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of support going into this vaccine and developing um, anything that will help us get out of this pandemic. So we should take at least some comfort in that there's a lot of resources being pooled into trying to get us out of this thing. But um, looking at the data, at least what's been released so far, mm-hmm. the people who received this vaccine, the, uh, to, who completed the course of the vaccine, which I believe it came in, you have to receive it, you have to get injected at one day and then get a booster several, uh, a week or two later. Um, what, we're, what they're seeing is, what they're reporting that they're seeing is that people who received the, do- the proper dose of the vaccine, they developed enough of antibodies to mimic the people who have recovered from the, uh, the disease who had been infected earlier. So what that means is that this, this vaccine is doing a good job of eliciting, eliciting the uh, proper antibody response as this person had uh, contracted the disease in the first place, but that person obviously never did. And so this is, this is very suggestive that it's going to be an effective vaccine. So it hasn't been done on a large scale. The next phase is 30,000 people. Um, but, you know, this does give us a very good reason for hope. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing I wanted to ask you before I let you go, you'd written a a commentary on why in-person schooling would be one of the safest activities uh, to reopen. Uh, As you know, in Los Angeles and San Diego, uh, they have decided the school year is not going to start with in-person classrooms, and that's the uh, verdict in various places across the country. Your thoughts on why it it would be the safest option, given what the Academy of Pediatrics have have said about um, other concerns about children, why is it safe, and how do we go about that? Yeah, it's not just the American Academy of uh, Pediatrics. It's um, pediatric associations all over the world, including the U.K., uh, the Netherlands, Denmark, um, all over the world. Children have the lowest risk of contracting 
of even contracting the virus in the first place, it seems, but also of developing severe disease, of dying, of, um, of even transmitting it to someone else. They have the lowest risk for any of this. So I'm not saying the, the risk is not zero. There are mm-hmm. some severe manifestations of the disease that are particular to children, but the, the risk is low. And if we're trying to get back to some degree of normalcy, then this is going to be one of the, the lowest risk um, activities that we can restart. Now, that having said, there are still adults involved in schooling. So all the interventions, or at least a lot of the interventions that we target towards school should be targeted at those who are at risk, that is the adult. Adults have to interact with one another, and they have to interact with parents. And so we should focus on these things. And, you know, staff lounges or uh, parent-teacher conferences, there should be social distancing there. There should be mask requirements there. But um, all of these things, we should not be punishing the the children themselves um, because of this virus. Well, Dr. Pham, thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Again, Dr. Kevin Pham is a medical doctor and is a contributor to the Daily Signal. He's also a former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good Wednesday afternoon. I am Georgine Rice, in for Frank Sontag. I'm the afternoon talk host at KKLA's sister station, KPDQ in Portland, Oregon. Now, for those of you listening in Los Angeles on 99.5 KKLA, thanks for joining us. Now, Frank usually begins every hour with an impact statement. We are going to do the same 20 plus minutes of uninterrupted dialogue and discussion. And I'll be introducing a guest in just a moment. Well, most of big tech openly uses its power to censor, but Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg has really stood out as the exception. Well, months into his First Amendment experiment, one of the lone holdouts on open debate is considering a policy that would silence the voices keeping some users alive. And that's not an overstatement. Everybody's entitled to information. That's what Facebook has argued, except maybe people struggling with their sexuality. Now, according to European sources, Mr. Zuckerberg's platform, along with its subsidiary, Instagram, may be trying to keep those hurting users from getting the information they're looking for. Well, on the table, according to CNN, is a proposal to block positive reviews or testimonials about sexual orientation change efforts, including counselors who specialize in the field. In fact, one British group has already been affected, at least temporarily, and executives warn that U.S. advocates may be next. One Twitter spokesperson pointed out that their platform already enforces this uh, prohibition on uh, favorable content. Well, here to talk with us about that and much more is a dear friend of mine, Ann Paul. She is the executive director and a board member of Restored Hope Network. She brings more than two decades experience as an author, speaker, spokesperson, and advocate for men and women struggling with unwanted same-sex attraction to her role as executive director of Restored Hope. Her mission in leading the organization is to restore hope to those broken by sexual and relational sin, especially those who've been impacted by homosexuality. Now, she says she does the work because the work of the Lord done in her. She says she wants, she knows that it's possible to be set free from sexual confusion and sin because that is her story. And it's a testimony of thousands of others all across the globe. Restored Hope wants to make sure all who seek that same kind of healing that these uh, uh, members have experienced through submitting to Jesus can have that be their story too and access uh, to help. I want to just uh, welcome a dear friend and uh, uh, colleague in many ways, Ann Paul. Thanks so much for joining us. What a privilege to be with you. Thank you, Georgine, for having me. 
Well, and I want to talk a, a bit about uh, what's happening at Facebook and some other issues as well. But I think it's important, first of all, especially in the state of California, to talk about what Restored Hope Network is and what it is not. One of the phrases that we're hearing quite often, and certainly in California, is conversion therapy. We're hearing reparative therapy, transformational ministry, talk therapy. What is it that uh, Restored Hope Network does and doesn't do? Well, that's a good question. First of all, nobody I know has ever used the word conversion therapy. That's not at all what we do. Um, reparative therapy is a unique counseling technique or uh, practice used by Joseph Nicolosi Sr. He's passed away. Um, and I don't know anybody doing reparative therapy right now. Um, we have always been part of transformational ministry. It's the belief that God actually changes people's lives and that he can redeem people from sin. Um, and based upon that, uh, we leave opportunity for people to overcome trauma that might be underlying some of their same-sex attraction or um, gender confusion. Oftentimes, there is some trauma underneath that. Uh, Walt Heyer is an excellent example of um, someone who had trauma underlying his gender dysphoria and later went through two sex change operations, of course, being infertile, uh, as a result of it, um, there are so many people who have sex change regret now um, that also followed that pathway and are thinking, thought that would solve all their problems, and then they learned it didn't. So we're here to stand in the gap for those who actually are interested in what God has to say and the fact that he does love people right where they're at, but loves them enough to draw them into his perspectives on life, and that's what the biblical perspectives are. So it's an exciting ministry. Um, we have never done coercion at all. Um, in fact, uh, we don't send materials to anyone who doesn't ask for them themselves, um, whether that's a brochure or anything else. Um, that's always been the way it was with the Exodus International Ministry as well. Um, so coercion is so far from us that it's kind of shocking that it's even mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, electroshock and all those other things that people often say are part of conversion therapy are really more scare tactics than I'm aware of being real things. It's almost like talking about Bigfoot and believing he exists without ever having seen any evidence of him. And so it's a fun myth, but we all know it's a myth, right? Well, in this case, Conversion therapy tends to put in front of people's ears and eyes often or testifying, people testifying with no details whatsoever about who did what when. Um, and I can name a few, but I won't. Um, they honestly are intentionally not giving details that can be corroborated. Um, and so, yet yeah, that's what is being put out in secular press routinely, often. So much so it's become uh, an urban myth at this point, conversion therapy. Yeah, I would go so far as to refer to it as propaganda. Therapy is another thing, but together, yeah, it's different. It's not what they're saying. I want to go back to something you said a moment ago. Um, It seems that the prevailing view, the accepted view in many quarters of the church is that there is an asterisk in Scripture that suggests that God has the capacity to transform us thoroughly with one narrow exception, in the area of sexuality, he neither has the power nor the desire to alter uh, what his word condemns. Can you ad- address that? Because I think many are under the impression that this is an issue that's too large even for God to address in a way that allows a person to be transformed by the work of his Holy Spirit 
to reflect his his um, moral order. Right, and they somehow have framed it in such a way that that's somehow sympathetic or kind. And actually, it's the hopeless viewpoint, right? It's the hopeless point that someone who's grappling with something they know God has said no to, called a sin, that for some reason that person cannot address that particular sin struggle. Um, and that is simply not true. God cares, He moves, and He does it despite us, <laughs> despite human beings. Uh, despite those who say it can't be done, um, He is still on the throne, He's still moving, and He's still able to not only forgive someone from their sin and their past, but also give them a new future. He's called us to new life in Jesus. And he's able to touch all areas, including sexuality, and I know that personally, because he did that in my life. So, there you go. (laughs) Now, what does that look like? Because some people would argue that if uh, a particular sin remains a temptation of a sort then you really are not uh, are not delivered from that sin. I might use the example of alcohol. A person who has been an alcoholic might find alcohol a, a temptation throughout the remainder of their life. What is the uh, what is the um, transformation look like? Does it mean that one never um, looks back at the sin and and struggles, or does it mean something else? Well, it's a good question. Um, I think a person dealing with alcohol, for example might find that initially they're craving it every second. They've got a well-entrenched habit of going to alcohol, using that as a, as a tool to overcome whatever it is at the moment. Um, that's similar to what someone in homosexuality is dealing with who may be very engaged in the gay life. Um, they're using sex, perhaps, as a tool to avoid certain things or, or to get a high of some degree. And so there is a very strong similarity, actually, between the two. So what happens when someone begins to go, well, you know, I, I'm engaging in this, but I know that God's called me to more. Or they encounter God for the first time, and then all of a sudden, uh, things begin to change, and their thinking is the first place of, like, what is your desire? What's your heart desire? Do you want to embrace that? Are you beginning to want to not embrace it? Um, and go towards God and away from sin. And that that will part may be the very first part that begins um, change, right? But that is a form of change. The second thing would be maybe the habits the person chooses to engage in. So they may frequently go to gay bars and to porn shops and what have you. And and an alcoholic may have often gone to bars and, and thought, oh, I can sit there and not drink or something. And, you know, that doesn't really work. So they have to then decide, is this something I want to do, or do I need to actually submit my actions as well um, in these smaller areas that are not exactly drinking, not exactly engaging in sex, but they're leading to it, right? And so um, some things begin to change internally or can change internally in those ways. Um, the Scripture calls us in Romans 12 to renew our minds, um, and not just to renew in any way, but renew in, the, in, the, in becoming more like Jesus, and becoming more like His moral attributes. And the exciting thing is the Holy Spirit is present uh, to help anyone in any struggle, including homosexuality or gender confusion, to realign with what God intends 
um, what his plan originally for them was, which does not include sin, by the way. Um, and it's odd that I have to say that, but I do have to say that in this culture. Mm-hmm. Um, 20 years ago, you wouldn't have had to say that. But today you have to say, well, no, God's intent, he didn't make someone gay. Um, why do I know that's true? Well, it would be against his own will, number one. Secondarily, it's not even scientifically proven. And um, there's no gene proven by the, the massive DNA studies that people are participating in, like the 23andMe and the, all of this stuff they're participating in. There's no gay gene. There's no gay, um, there's no proof whatsoever that someone is scientifically born gay. And then people extrapolate that to God's will that they were meant to be gay. Why? Because it couldn't change. Well, what did you do to work on that? <laughs> That's the next question. Anyway, but God's yeah, yeah. power is very, very great. He is not uh, weak. He is very strong, and he's very loving. Um, he's able to love people right where they're at and then draw them up and higher into the kingdom of God. And um, he's not afraid of honesty. He's, uh, In fact, he, he requires it of us. Um, and sometimes it's very humbling um, to, to come to a pastor or someone like me and share, this is what I've been involved in, and how can I, how can I walk it, this life out differently? Uh, this is not the way I want to go. Yeah, and yeah. Um, that's, that's pretty humbling. It takes, it takes relationship to overcome relationship issues. And James, uh, the book of James and the end of Peter mention, um, you know, that we're to be holding each other accountable, and we can't do that unless we know what each other is going through. And so what you're describing is repentance and discipleship toward obedience and healing. That is what God is calling us to. And that's what Restored Hope Network walks people, walks with people to. Yes. Yes. Well stated in the perfect language. Thank you, Ms. Georgine. <laughs> hey, we're talking to Ann Polk. She's executive director of Restored Hope Network. Uh, we're going to be talking about some issues of censorship in, in just a few moments, but I think it's important to understand uh, what Restored Hope Network is, what they do, and how they minister to those who uh, want to reflect their commitment to Christ in the way they live. And let's talk about what the, the network is and how you come alongside those who are seeking to follow Jesus in holiness. You bet. I've had people think that we're a television network. We are not. <laughs> we're actually a coalition of member ministries, counselors, and pastors across the United States. Uh, we have friendships outside the country as well for those who are looking for help. Um, so what we do is simply walk alongside of disciple and encourage counsel as well, professional counselors, um, uh, those who are wanting that are dealing with unwanted same-sex attraction. So they want to align to God's uh, purpose for sexuality in their life, whether that's as a single person or as someone who marries someone of the opposite gender. Um, singleness is a high value in Scripture, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, yeah, so that, those are some of the goals that we have in mind, and um, we do that by walking alongside those who are grappling with this. And most of us, not all, have grappled with it ourselves and come to a place of resolve where we've seen God move in a mighty way. Um, many, many years ago, I dealt with same-sex attraction on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. Um, I was probably in my mid-20s. 
early to mid twenties. And, um, I, I could never have foreseen a time in my life where I wasn't dealing with that often. So I want to address the question you asked about temptation. Um, is it possible to have lessening same-sex attraction? Yes, it is. Is it possible to have uh, temptation arise at some point in one's life unexpected? Yes, it is. Uh, but what matters is what you decide to do with temptation. Some people define themselves by it. So you hear about the phrase gay Christian now, where it's not clear whether the person's actually acting on it or if they simply have same-sex attraction, or they've got this from time to time. Um, so that, I think, is important to clarify as well. We have a white paper on our website that talks about gay Christian, question mark, and what, what does that mean? What is the identity? And where does that go? Um, so it matters that everybody's going to encounter some kind of temptation as a believer. What do you do with it? Mm-hmm. If you're tempted towards someone other than your spouse— it matters what you do with it, whether you play with that in your mind or you dismiss it and say, absolutely not, you're not moving anywhere with that. Um, you tell yourself that about some coworker or who knows who. Um, everybody has to battle temptation of some degree or another. But if you routinely do um, a, a well-trained action where you're walking in integrity, then you're going to find your way is a lot easier because you've trained yourself in righteousness. You're training yourself to act in a way that pleases God, and Scripture encourages us in that as well. And the network of of Restored Hope provides resource to help walk alongside people who make that decision. I I have decided to follow Jesus, and I'm going to do that in the context of relationship to help me walk out the commitment that I've made by the power that God himself will give me to be faithful. Amen. That's exactly what we do and who we are. Now, this is a... a, Go ahead. Well, it's fascinating that that is actually a belief and a practice, uh, but nothing that's offensive, nothing along the lines of what um, has been claimed in most TV shows, right? And Mm -hmm. and leading up to bands, they've there have been these incredible claims with no concrete evidence thereof of anybody who's behaved in those ways with these individuals. So I find it fascinating. Um, we've never had any ethics violations with Restored Hope Network, but I don't remember any from Exodus either. And I was only part of that for part of my life because I was mm-hmm. a stay-at-home mom at that time. So anyhow. Yeah, that's the environment that we're in. The opportunities to make uh, Restored Hope Network uh, and the work that you do known um, are narrowing. I mentioned a few moments ago that uh, Facebook is moving in the direction of so many other of the uh, big tech giants, the social media that provides a platform for information to be shared. Uh, How challenging is it, not just in the secular uh, world of technology, but within the church, to communicate a message that is consistent with Scripture, that's supported by scripture that's built on a foundation of scripture and what God does in the life of a, of a believer. How difficult is it for you to connect with those who are looking for help when the avenues of communication are narrowing? Well, it's definitely getting more difficult uh, moment by moment with centers and with um, maligning in the secular realm. It does impact the church. 
Uh, and people have more, they've come to the point of aligning more frequently with the concept of the gay Christian, a person who is gay identified and maybe or maybe not acting on some of those feelings. And so the lack of transform, transformation and transformed lives is really beginning to cripple aspects of the church in the United States and abroad. Um, and, and people with that hopeless um, position are, are having much more sway in the church as they've presented it as a form of compassion. Um, so that, that does make it difficult, and censure uh, within social media platforms makes it difficult also. We have many people who contact us through various social media uh, tools, including Facebook. Facebook is an incredibly relational online program, and so um, that, that handicaps us quite a bit. Are you experiencing that as Restored Hope Network, um, that it's more difficult on platforms like Facebook to communicate the message in general, or are they narrowing it to certain kind of communication? How has that impacted you so far? Well, oddly enough, there was a, um, just recently this Thursday, they put out a press release saying they banned content promoting conversion therapy and then included spiritual and psychological interventions. Um, spiritual interventions, so that would be, you know, anything to do with Christianity, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened is I went to then the wall, I went to the public Facebook page of Restored Hope Network on Facebook, and I was looking at notifications, scrolling down, and it presented with uh, presented my screen with a um, limited content. Uh, we can't do this too much because we're trying to pre- prevent spam to our community. And I thought... Scrolling down a navigation screen is not sending any message anywhere. You're just trying to read your own messages. Um, And it happened probably 12 times uh, as I was doing this at different times of the day as well. So I was quite surprised that they don't let us even talk to the people who are our friends, who are fans on social media, and read what they commented. Uh, So that was like how can you maintain communication with a group of people that's not allowing you to even scroll down the page? Odd, but yeah. it looks like they're heading towards this. Yeah, yeah. Now, is it possible to um, appeal this decision? What recourse is there, if any? I mean, some are suggesting there we develop new platforms that do allow the kind of freedom that we thought these platforms originally intended to provide. Uh, what alternatives or uh, um, appeal process are you aware of that, that might help? Well, that's a good question. I think at this point we look at it in the sense that it is not government, and so it is a company, mm-hmm. uh, but it is a huge company. It's no small company. It's almost, um, oh, I forget the name, but it's so big it's almost like a utility. And um, with their actions against some of the president's uh, tweets, he threatened something along the lines of declaring they're a public utility. So that would change things a little bit. I don't know if that's even possible. I don't know if it's likely. I kind of give that a huge grain of salt and toss the idea off the side. So what I think about right away is here is a huge company willing to potentially ban people for a different view that they disagree with, that uh, they want to shut down the marketplace of ideas. Um, and allow the person who's listening to discern 
what's true and what's not true. And um, if that's the case, what can we do about it? Well, we can appeal to Facebook first and foremost, which I did. Um, uh, I have not heard back from them yet. Um, so we'll wait and see what happens there. The first step is going directly to the source. Mm-hmm. The second step would be to um, evaluate if it's happening broadly, if there might be a, a large suit that could be filed, filed with a whole bunch of people, um, which is likely because a whole bunch of people are actually being impacted by this. Um, So that's another possibility. Um, Yeah, you know, this is a tough one. I'd like to see a a wonderfully um, Christian-friendly, at least, um, social media site that was really solid. Um, I'm not seeing that currently. I'm seeing some options, but not a whole lot. So if anybody's listening and they know of a solid one, I would love to hear about it. Yeah. My guest is Ann Paul. She's executive director of Restored Hope Network. You can go to their website, by the way, at RestoredHopeNetwork.org for more information and some amazing testimonies of what God is doing in the lives of those who have purposed to follow him wholly. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, I'm Georgine Rice in for Frank Sontag. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice in for Frank Sontag. I'm the afternoon talk host at KKLA Sister Station, KPDQ in Portland. If you'd like to weigh in in the conversation, you can give us a call at 888-528-2557. That's 888 528-2557. I'm continuing my conversation with my guest and dear friend, Ann Polk. She's the executive director of Restored Hope. I recently read an article. It was uh, it published uh, by Christianity Today. It was part of their Voices series. Cheslin Vicari was the writer. And the headline was, Why It Matters, Jen Hatmaker Endorsed Her Daughter's Homosexuality. And I was interested in elements of it, and I just want to bring you up to date, those of you who are perhaps unfamiliar. Um, Jen Hatmaker has a, pa- a podcast of which she is the uh, uh, the host. She's a popular author and speaker. She invited her daughter, Sydney, to discuss her homosexuality and spirituality on that podcast. It was part of a special A Moment of Pride series on her For the Love podcast. She expressed in this uh, very raw and heartbreaking conversation with her daughter that uh, one of her greatest regrets was not reconciling homosexuality and Christianity sooner. Uh, the writer of the column in Christianity Today and the Voices um, contributor, Cheslin Vicari, makes reference in reflecting on all of this on Romans one thirty two, which is a warning to those who blatantly disregard the moral law and deadly effects of sin. She says, we're listening to this happen on a podcast between Jen and Sydney Hatmaker, a popular Christian mother overlooks any recognition of sin and even apologizes for once affirming moral, moral law. It is painful to listen as there's no recognition of wrong. She also points out that this individual has a strong influence on young Christian moms. Her words and actions are affected. Uh, and, and how she approaches her daughter's sexuality will influence a cohort of young moms, many thousands who attend conservative 
evangelical churches. And then she writes this, and I want to invite you to comment on this, uh, And She writes, I do wish that more Christian leaders with more authority than this blogger has were sounding the alarm, but there's been little commentary, especially from female Christian leaders. Where are the mature Christian names who've grappled with extending grace to their beloved children while also affirming Orthodox Christian teachings? Their experience and insights are what we need to hear now. And she is lamenting the fact that uh, no voices were raised or that the fact that she didn't know any of those voices who were out there, which I think really highlights the necessity of having the freedom to communicate on these kinds of issues. Your thoughts on this um, on this uh, popular podcast? And again, I'm not I'm not trying to trash uh, the podcaster or her daughter, but generally speaking, this notion that um, you know where are the voices that can can speak to this, and then at the same time. Uh, the, the degree of difficulty to have those voices heard that are uh, available and ready to speak and have a tremendous insight like yours? Well, the voices are there. If yes. they would like to listen to them, they have free access to a whole video on how to grapple with uh, same-sex attracted children and to do so with authenticity and kindness and incredible love, as well as not compromising biblical truth. Um, there's a whole video created about this on our um, website that's professionally done and has won many awards called How Do You Like Me Now? And it actually gives um, theologically sound and uh, relationally sound ideas of how to grapple with all this. So it's out there. It's already been out there. Um, and it's free and accessible on our website, RestoredHopeNetwork.org, under resources, recommended resources, at the very top of that page, it'll have How Do You Like Me Now, um, which you can click. It'll take you right over to YouTube. You can watch the full video. Um, there are plenty of these voices out there. Yes. Um, she may not be listening to the right sources. And guess, it's not a popular topic on the speaking circuits. <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess <laughs> the thing that real. was disturbing to me was the fact that she had no idea uh, who they were, where they were, where to find them, which raises the issue of, um, you know, cutting off avenues of communication. I'm I'm right. gravely concerned that even the church uh, doesn't know where to go. There's a lot of uh, concern. You don't want to uh, alienate people. On the other hand, you want to stand for how do we go about this? Uh, does the church know of a resource like Restored um, uh, Restored Hope Network that can provide uh, clarity in how to communicate these issues in a very challenging time. So I think that perhaps bothered me more than the content of the article itself is mm, the um, mm. the fact that, yeah, that people is, are unaware. It problem and it's, it's hard to get out into the into the realms where they yes. would like where we'd like to be. Um, we have so many wonderful endorsements from the likes of Al Mohler to uh, D.A. Carson and many, many others on our website, endorsements from them on our board of reference. So how do we move from simple endorsement into the realm of impacting those who so desperately need to hear hope and, and grappling with these hard topics in a, in a biblically faithful way? And, I, uh, you know, that's the trick of it. Um, it seems as if there's more of a deaf ear in the church to that viewpoint than the pro-gay viewpoint, the affirming mm-hmm. homosexuality viewpoint that's currently happening. And so it's hard to get out into that realm when others who are very pro-gay, but seeming like they aren't, are, are becoming 
more the influence influencers. Um, so that is well, let's talk about how difficult. Yeah. It's a bit of a quandrum. It's, yeah. a, it's a quandary for me. Um, let's talk a little bit about how Restored Hope Network. Uh, also has among its uh, its goals helping to equip the church because I think a lot of times the church is silent right. or simply acquiesces uh, because we don't quite know in our current climate how to address these issues uh, in the right way. We know what the scriptures say, but how do we go about it? Restored Hope right. Network can help. That's true, and we do have some resources for parent uh, for pastors and Christian leaders as well. We. We often put on an event called Pastors Equip, um, and that can be really, really helpful. Um, we've had exceptional feedback about it. We have a HOPE conference every year that covers some of these topics, and then mostly what we're looking for is supporting families who are grappling with these issues and, um, and also people grappling with uh, the issues personally of same-sex attraction or gender identity confusion. And so um, the resources are there. We have plenty of events happening at all times to equip on all sorts of topics. But a summary version of it directly to Christian leaders is available. You just have to um, let us know you're interested, and we'll definitely uh, consider that, put it online, and go for it. So that would be the thing. It is scary in this atmosphere with all these so-called conversion therapy bands, which no one does conversion therapy, um, to, uh, you know, to address any topic surrounding homosexuality. And so knowing that and knowing that affirming homosexuality is given the greatest applause right now, um, it's pretty terrifying for most people to talk about this or even cover it from a pulpit about what is sin. Is it, in fact, sin, and why is it sin? And there's a lot of compassion from God in the sense that, um, you know, if we understand homosexuality is sin, we also know someone who knows how to deal with sin. Jesus died for to redeem us from it, and that is profound. That's, that's powerful, and it's very hopeful. Yes. It's probably the most hopeful message there is surrounding homosexuality or any sin struggle. And yet that is, that's the core of the gospel that's not being applied to those who are in homosexual uh, struggle. So, yeah, I would love to see that uh, return to being the focal point. Um, it definitely will incur some wrath from those who are in your church. You know, it will, it will destroy lives without talking about it, though. And that's the problem. We're having people actually... Um, self-destructing and really going through difficult times when no one's willing to offer them the right tools to help overcome sin struggle in their lives. And so who are we more concerned about, God's view of how we're behaving or culture's view of how we're behaving? And I think that's the crux of the question. Now, for any listener who is in the midst of that struggle and is looking for for help, uh, what's the best way for them to discover a Restored Hope Network affiliate in their area? Well, I would highly recommend that if anybody's dealing with this, to look on our website. That would be the first place to go, RestoredHopeNetwork.org, RestoredHopeNetwork.org. And on there, you can click on Find Help and go to the list of uh, available resources. You can also contact us and email the office, and we can recommend the best 
uh, connection point for you. Um, there are all sorts of different ways, but I would really recommend that you check us out first and verify that you think and see that mm-hmm. we are a solid biblical resource. Um, check under about, look at who we are, what we say about ourselves and what we actually are doing, who endorses us, um, what that kind of thing. So I'd highly recommend you check that out. Absolutely. Um, and then once you feel secure about what's happening and you want to call or you want to call one of the, the local ministry support groups, then please do check them out. Um, there's no cost for doing those calls. I just want to let people know we're here as a donation to those who want to um, look for help. So we don't charge people who call our office, Restored Hope Network office. We actually receive donations from those who have been helped and those who love what we do. And so from there, we're able to be a resource to you and recommend different uh, avenues, whether they're books or uh, videos or whatever, or local support or the best resource in the country for that particular topic, that kind of thing. It's our delight. It's my joy to participate in that with you. So definitely check us out. Put us through scrutiny there. Uh, and then um, give a ring. Uh, send an email, and we'll we'll talk further, and then we can recommend what we think would be the best connection. Best for you. Usually people are really grappling with a lot of um, uh, fear, and shame, and uh, some family members are really just in shock that a loved one came out to them and said, hey, mom, dad, I'm gay, or grandma, grandpa, I'm dealing with this in my life, or I want to be known as so-and-so. And And, um, that, that grief and shock can be really difficult, but we're recommended by Focus on the Family and many other uh, groups. So I hope that you can check us out and and verify that we're good. We also check out all of our members, by the way, and have everybody run through theological check. Uh, we check them out theologically. We check them out uh, with what they do. We check them out with background checks and, and verify who they are. So we've scrutinized all those who serve people as well. So I just want to let everybody know that. Appreciate that. We're talking with Ann Polk. She's the executive director of Restored Hope Network. We're going to take a quick break. And I wonder when we come back, Ann, if you would just give your testimony, how God transformed your life as he's transformed so many of our lives from our various particular sins. But if you could share that with us when we return, we'd love to hear your testimony. You bet. I'm Georgine Rice in for Frank Sontag. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. I'm Georgine Rice in for Frank Sontag. I'm completing my conversation with Ann Polk, Executive Director of Restored Hope Network. She is a voice of authority, a woman who has walked through these troubled waters that so preoccupy our culture. And I wondered if in the next four minutes that we have remaining, if you could briefly share your testimony, Ann. I surely will. I was born into, I was the youngest in my family, uh, youngest of four kids, intact family, mom and dad. Um, and I was uh, probably three years old, happily playing with dolls and what have you. My big sis being six years older, she, you know, put up with me following her around, <laughs> <laughs> which wasn't always. But uh, right about three and a half years old, almost four years old, um, someone asked me to ask this boy in my neighborhood 
why there were no pictures of boy parts in this porn that they found under his bed. And here I was, this little three-year-old, um, that an older child asked me to ask this boy. And I did, and he assumed, you know, I was three, what do you know? You just do what you're, the older people ask of you. Um, he assumed, I guess, that I was personally interested and so that began a sexual molestation experience um, several times, but not endless, happily. Um, but overnight, the response that I had emotionally uh, was very much like a grieving experience, I guess, because my mom thought later on when we talked 20 years later, she said, I thought those um, things that you were going through was related to your grandfather dying, which he had died, and he was our favorite. So I'd lost both my grandfather during this time, who was very precious to me, and also had this experience happen. Um, overnight, I turned into a total tomboy, um, threw off everything girl, because that seemed to put me at more risk. Uh, at least that's what my little mind told me. Um, you know waking up in the middle of the night crying and all sorts of other things, but it was all assumed to be related to um, my grandfather's passing, and yet it wasn't. And so as I grew, that kind of solidified in me that boys are dangerous and that I am safer if I'm, if I'm not a girl. Um, those were the concepts in my little mind at that time. Um, so today, if you would have encountered little Anne, you might have said, oh, she must have been born in the wrong body and not even dealt with the trauma that's underlying this concept in my life. Um, wouldn't have known about it because I was so little. And if you affirm the cross-gender thing, I'd end up being surgically altered but not dealt with in the trauma of my soul, right? So that's the condition our culture's in these days, which is really sad. Um, but as I went through um, my young adult life, then a girl made a pass at me and I realized, oh, I'm in control of this as opposed to the other direction, me being abused. And so that became an outlet for my future attractions. Um, when I went through puberty, I was a tomboy with a purpose. I had a reason for dressing the way I did and not uh, looking as girly as the other girls. And when they went through this big, huge leap into femininity, I was stuck. I was stuck in the tomboy phase um, for a reason. And so I faked fitting in with my girlfriends, but found myself having attractions to certain ones of them. Um, and I pretended that it wasn't there. I kind of sensed that, you know, that wasn't ideal, but I didn't have any reason why to turn it down. I simply just, my conscience uh, then in high school, I continued to have attractions, read a little bit of the Bible. Unfortunately for me at that time, I was thinking, and uh, and read up through Leviticus, reading it like a book, a novel, and encountered, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and some other things, um, which showed um, homosexuality um, not in the, you know, it was aggressive homosexuality, uh, but Leviticus was pretty firm. Um, for any kind of expression along those lines. And at that point, I shut the book and put it aside and went away to college um, and fell in love with a girl at college or had a crush on her 
and then started getting counseling. And what a little bit I did know about God, which was very, very tiny, kind of a deist viewpoint that God made the earth and then stepped away kind of thing, not personally interested. Um, so he was pretty easy to throw out, and, and I really wanted to pursue my same-sex attraction and uh, got involved in gay bars under way underage. I was 18 in California. UC Santa Barbara, actually, is where I went to college. Uh, embraced all sorts of things, but became more and more depressed as I did. Um, had no reason to say no to things, and so I tried drugs. I, you know, had sex. I did this and that and the other, and none of it satisfied and then eventually I began having dreams about Jesus. And so this is the end of my first year in college. I'm having dreams about Jesus, surrounded by my, uh, here as a sub, uh, cultural Christian, surrounded by my Jewish friends, I would confide in them about these dreams. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about, Anne. I don't go along with this. Uh, you know, I don't even know how to talk to you about this. So that was pretty funny, and then I ended up defending Jesus in front of them at one point, and I thought, what is wrong with me? I've already thrown him out. <laughs> That's ridiculous. And then I'm having dreams. What's going on? So you know, Jesus was pursuing you. <laughs> so, praise God, though, that wasn't the end of it. Um, as I began asking, okay, God, who are you really? And what I'm searching for is love. Um, I'm, I'm desperately looking for connection, intimacy, and love. And um, he began well, tell you answering what, my it, prayers. It's incredibly rude to interrupt your testimony or to ask you to give it <laughs> oh, in five sorry. minutes. But I've got a hard break at the top of the hour. I appreciate yeah. so much your sharing what you have shared. And I would encourage people who want to learn more to go to RestoredHopeNetwork.org. Uh, it's a great organization, and I so appreciate you, Anne, and the time that you've taken to be with us here today. Thank you. And again, you I apologize. Bet. Thank you so much. Okay, no problem. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.